0: Good morning, my name is Dave Burden, and uh, if you have a Bible, turn to Colossians uh, chapter 4, and uh, we're going back into the book of Colossians this morning, and uh, technically we never actually left it, in some ways we did, in some ways we didn't. We took a slight rabbit trail over the last eight or nine weeks, um, developing an understanding of prayer through studying the Lord's Prayer in particular. And we did that because in Colossians 4, 2, Paul directs the Colossians as a part of this new self, as a part of this new creation that they are in Christ, uh, that they are to devote themselves to prayer. And so we looked at the way that Jesus instructed the disciples to pray uh, in the Gospels. And so since we haven't been talking a lot about, directly about the Colossian church, I'm just going to take a few minutes, and I mean that. Hopefully I'll kind of race through this because I don't want to chew up too much time but bring us back into the context of what's happening in the Colossian church because it matters to what we're going to talk about this morning. Um, this is a book that is a letter from Paul written to this group of people in Colossae. How do you say that, Russ? Colossae? I struggle with pronunciation. Um, it was written while he was in prison, literally physically imprisoned, chained, in prison. Uh, The Colossian church was a relatively young church, uh, not necessarily in age, but young in their faith, young in their walk with the Lord. Paul is writing uh, to this young church to encourage and contend for the hearts and minds of these believers. He is concerned, and rightfully so, Uh, in that day and age, because churches that were being formed, people who were trusting themselves to Christ and to what he would describe later on as the mystery of Christ, uh, they were under quite a bit of influence from other teaching and ideas. Uh, It was called, uh, a theological term or things that you read in a uh, commentary, it's called religious syncretism. It's the blending of different aspects of various belief systems and therefore kind of forming a hybrid belief system. It's like cooking uh, when you don't really have anything, uh, but you've just got what you've got in the pantry. We're just kind of throwing a bit of this, a bit of that together. And although, well, that I guess can be actually quite destructive in cooking as well. Uh, In the journey of a young church uh, who really isn't grounded uh, quite yet in the faith, uh, that is a very, very destructive thing um, to be taking a bit of this and a bit of that And so Paul's really concerned for them. He's concerned because they are potentially minimizing the supremacy of Christ. And they're adding things to that or they're subtracting things from that with other ideas. Things like religious duties and actions. This is still a problem uh, for us today. We don't suffer in the same way, uh, I think, uh, quite that they were suffering. But it's still a problem. We'll talk about that. There's a rhythm to this letter. Paul is reminding them of what they have received in Christ. So This is what's happened for you, the significance of that. And then he's praying that God would explode a deeper understanding and a grasp of that reality. So he's saying, know this, and then I'm begging, I'm pleading with the Lord to explode a deeper understanding of that. And then he's saying, okay, because of those two things, Go live in the reality of that truth. That they would bear fruit. It's a term that he uses in this letter. That they would show the outward signs of this inward dispositional shift. Something has changed about you and therefore understand that fully and then live in the reality of that. This is kind of typified in Colossians 2.6 where he says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up. Hear those two terms: rooted, and then built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thanksgiving, thanks- thankfulness, thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and on the basic principles of this world rather than Christ. Paul is fighting and laboring for these people, that they would continue to live in Christ, the way that they received Christ. That they would understand what's happened for them. They would mature in that understanding to such a degree that their lives would bear the fruit that marks that kind of an understanding. So in chapter 3, he begins to lay out some of the practicalities of what that life would look like. Putting on the new self, putting to death things that belong to the earthly nature. And this carries over into chapter 4, which is where we're going to be today. So, chapter 4, verses 2 and 3 is where we're going to be spending our time this morning. And again, 4 uh, 2 is kind of what launched us into this Lord's Prayer series that we've done over the last nine weeks. So, Colossians 4 2. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. Where the ESV translation says, pray that God may open a door for the word so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray for us too that God may open a door for the word or for the message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. This is the only verse we're going to talk about this morning. And there are a few things and I really, <laughs> I told a friend last night as I was, he asked me, how, "How how's the preparation gone? And I said, man, the preparation has been so good for me. Uh, I don't really know. <laughs> I'm honestly, even standing before this right now, I'm not really sure how this is going to come off. But it has been so good for me to study this one verse today. And I really prayed that the Lord would uh, help <laughs> me communicate the significance of what I feel like he led me to uh, in this one verse. So here we go. Prayer. I know we've been talking about it for the last nine weeks or so. Um, Paul mentions prayer often in this letter. He starts this letter with prayer, and now he's finishing this letter with prayer. Repetition is something we are encouraged to pay a lot of attention to. He sees prayer as necessary. He sees it as an essential part of life in Christ, that it's something that we do now (laughs) as people who are believers. It's an affirmation on Paul's part of the nature of how true change occurs. If something is actually going to occur, the Lord has to do the work. He has to grant the faith. He has to give eyes and ears to see and to understand. Unless the Spirit does only what the Spirit can do, then the most convincing, the most persuasive, the most slick, the most sexy teaching has no power. It's lifeless. Paul is admitting constantly throughout this letter, we are dependent on the Lord for everything. So pray. First Corinthians two, one, another letter. He says this When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is it. You're beginning to get your head, and we're going to do this this morning, our head around the theological mind of Paul, what had supremacy in his life and what he's calling us to make life about. He says, I came to you in weakness and in fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that... Your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, who's a famous orator, preacher, says it like this, Shall I give you yet another reason why you should pray? I have preached my very heart out. I could not say any more than I have said. Will not your prayers accomplish that which my preaching fails to do? Is it not likely that the church has been putting forth its preaching hand, but not its praying hand? Oh, dear friends, let us agonize in prayer. Martin Luther was famed for saying, I have so much to do today that I shall never get through it with less than three hours of prayer. It's what you do, right? When you roll out of bed, oh, slam today, I guess I should pray for three hours. It's significant what Paul is doing here. And this statement in particular really shocked me. He says, pray for us too. So He's been talking about things that he's been praying for them, things that he wants to see the Lord explode in their life. And now he is asking them, this very young church, to pray for him and for his fellow workers. This is a beautiful thing. And as I meditated on it, to me it was a staggering act of Christ-like humility and equality. That Paul is asking this bunch of young believers to pray for him. This is Paul, guys. Probably, I mean, wrote three quarters of the New Testament. He's saying, pray for me. Pray for me. He needs God's grace. He needs The movement of the Holy Spirit in his life, just as they do. Literally, the the God-given desire of Paul's life, if you've studied anything about Paul and his conversion on the Damascus Road, set apart to preach Christ to the Gentiles in particular, that desire being fulfilled, he understands is entirely under the control, the direction, and the empowerment of the Lord and his will for his life. So in in the commentaries I studied, in my thoughts, some of the things I read, his request for prayer for an open door is more than likely twofold. One, it's literally that the Lord would continue to give him opportunities. Give me an opportunity to talk about what is most important to me. This is life to me. And then secondly, that the Lord would grant the people that he's speaking to, the receivers, give them an open door, an open heart open their heart to be able to receive what's being said. Because no matter how I say this, it takes you to do that. It takes the movement of you. So in light of this, let's look just for a second, maybe for more than a second, at the specifics of what Paul's asked, what he asked for. Because honestly, this is where it got a little crazy for me in studying this verse. You see, he's in prison. Physically in prison. In prison. His desire, his call to preach the gospel, wouldn't you think, is seemingly being thwarted by this imprisonment. Certainly, he's going to ask for what? Get me out of prison. This is what I'm called to do, right? This is what the Lord has set me apart from. Let me out of here so I can get back to doing what the Lord's called me to do. Because in here, in this situation, certainly this can't be what the Lord has for me because this is what I do, right? Why doesn't Paul ask for them to pray for his circumstances to change? Why doesn't Paul say, pray that I will get out of prison so that I can get back to preaching and planting churches? It's his only, his first and only personal prayer request. Make it count, right? You're going to ask for something? I mean, you're in a group setting. Pray. What are you going to ask to pray about? You don't ask for inconsequential things. You ask for the most important things. So there are a couple things I kind of want to extract out of this. Paul asked, and there's two of them, Paul asked for open doors to proclaim the mystery of Christ only because he had embraced the mystery of life in Christ. I'll say that again. He asked for open doors to proclaim the mystery of Christ because he had embraced the mystery of life in Christ. He had given up, surrendered on the execution of his plan, his way, how he thought his life should go. So much so that he wouldn't even say he had a life. He had fallen headlong into the fundamental trust in the will of God for his life. What Joel preached about not too long ago, thy will be done in the Lord's Prayer. It's why he can write something like he writes in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things, all things, imprisonment, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Those were not just kind of wistful, happy sentiments that is bedrock truth for Paul's life. He's saying this is how I understand life and the gospel. God is working this out for my good. How do you do with mystery? How do you handle uncertainty in your life? It's hard for me it can create great amounts of anxiety and discomfort in my life because I want control of my life. And in fact, we're encouraged quite strongly in our Western mindset that you can control every aspect of your life. Your life is, is self-determined. Go out there and make it happen. When I was uh, about 24 I lost a job, and uh, it was it was life to me this job that I had. My uh, identity was so profoundly wrapped up in this job. I had no idea until I lost it how much it mattered to me. And the Lord took me uh, from this job where I was doing what I loved, and He put me um, opened some doors for me to uh, work on a farm. Thanks for the open door. Uh, I lived in a single wide trailer with no TV and no phone for about a year because I was so poor. And, um, and there was an awful lot of mystery going on. I had no idea what God was up to in my life. And in fact, uh, I hated it. I despised it at times. Um, It took a long, long time for him to teach me and to cultivate what I would call, and we'll talk about this in a second, the willingness to embrace the mystery, that he is doing something good even though I can't understand it. So you have to ask yourself this question, and I'm asking you to ask it. Is mystery something to be embraced or something to be solved and conquered? Most of the time when suffering or difficulty enters into someone's life, we expect it, don't we? God will reveal to me what the heck is going on, and he better do it quickly. Because <laughs> I can't have any comfort until I can explain it to my friends. Oh, but, but, hey, it's been tough, but here's what God's doing, right? In fact, we don't even talk about things until we can talk about them like that. And then if he doesn't give that, what do we do? Often we have to change our theology concerning his nature and character. God isn't good. God's a mean kid with a magnifying glass, and I'm just an ant. He doesn't really care about me. He's not really sovereign. He doesn't have control. I have to shift some way I think about him just to cope with the fact that I am so in love with control and I can't embrace mystery. But embracing the gospel is embracing mystery. It is embracing a mysterious love that God has had for us and the way that he has enacted that love through his son on the cross. Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Paul had embraced this mystery. The limits of his ability to see and understand what God was up to in his life. In fact, he went this far in another one of his letters in Philippians. Writing about his imprisonment, he says this, Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. He's talking with some perspective here. What I thought was bad has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear through the whole palace garden to everyone else, that I'm in chance for Christ because of my chains. As a result of the thing I didn't want, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word more courageously and fearlessly. <laughs> the jujitsu of the gospel, he's flipping the circumstance. You don't understand what he's doing. You can't half the time, maybe more than half the time. He goes on to talk about why people preach Christ this is probably one of the most mind blowing sentences for me. He says, Some people do it for good reasons, some people do it for bad, selfish reasons, but what does it matter? I mean, what a hilarious line right there in the middle. What does it matter? The why isn't as important as we make it. Why is this happening? He even talks about the fact that his imprisonment turned out for his deliverance. The mystery of Christ. I'm just going to say a sentence about this. What Paul is kind of encapsulating, it would be way too much to unpack this morning. This was not how people, especially the Jewish people, thought that God was going to accomplish redemption. Through humility Through self sacrifice, through servant, through laying down. Paul had this mystery revealed to him and he embraced it. He set his mind on it, it became life to him. Paul embraced the mystery of Christ and therefore was willing to embrace the mystery of Christ in him, Christ living his life through Paul. Will you or do you embrace mystery? or do you have to control everything? Are you willful or are you willing in your life? I'm going to read something from a book that's been helping me put some categories to things uh, by a guy named Gerald May called Will and Spirit. And I think this separation will maybe be helpful. He says, uh, willingness which is mystery I'm willing to embrace something, even though I don't understand it fully. And willfulness cannot be explained in two words, or in a few words, for they are very subtle qualities and often overlapping, and very easily confused with one another. But we can begin by saying that willingness implies surrendering of one's self-separateness. Rampant individualism. Life is about me and an entering into, and an immersion into the deepest processes of life itself. Willingness is a realization that one is already a part of some ultimate cosmic process. And it is a commitment to a participation in that process. There's a story being told, a redemptive story that's happening, and God is writing it, and I'm a part of a larger story. The story is not about me. My story fits within the context of that story. That's willingness. In contrast, willfulness is the setting of oneself apart from the fundamental essence of life in an attempt to master, direct, control, or otherwise manipulate existence. More simply, willingness is saying yes to the mystery of being alive. And willfulness is saying no or perhaps more commonly, yes, but. Willingness is saying yes to the mystery of being alive in each moment. This is what Paul was doing. I'm willing, Lord. What do you want? You want to put me in prison? Okay. I'll embrace the mystery of being alive in this moment. What are you doing? What are you up to? Willfulness is like saying, God, I want to see you work in my life, and here is the way. I've got two poles up, and you can work in here. Anything outside of these poles, no thanks. I'm not, I'm not open to that, because I'm not willing. I'm willful. Most of us believe that we're actually willing when we're actually just willful. I'm willful. I want to see God work in my life in this way. Because when he doesn't work in my life in that way, what do I do? I rage. If you, sorry, depending on your willingness to embrace the mystery of Christ and consequently the mystery of your life, this will determine what you understand to be an open door. Anything can become an open door. An open door for God to work. An open door for God to reveal himself to you. An open door for God to use you. An open door for him to explode the reality of the gospel in your life because mystery is a part of my life. If you see mystery as something to be eliminated, then you will only have the ability to see God work and use you in the areas that you will for your life, that I will for my life. And secondly, this. Paul had embraced something other than mystery, and this is huge. It's going to sound so simple. It can't <laughs> sounds so simple. It's, most of the huge things in life are. The deepest... He had embraced this, that he had already in Christ the deepest desire of his heart fulfilled. All of his desire, all of his longing, everything he wanted from life, he understood and he had embraced that it was found in Christ. And therefore, what happened to his life, the mystery of it, the pain of it, the confusion of it, even his desire to understand it, all of that fell in the shadow of, subservient to that reality. I've got what I want in Christ. He says it in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says it in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, he's communicating something significant to us. And that's why he asked for prayer about this. You only ask for prayer about what you value most. (laughs) You only speak about what is most important to you. Have you ever been on a trip or around somebody who's in young love? Like they've just kind of fallen in love with somebody? Like maybe you went on a beach trip with a girl who just met him or vice versa. sickening, isn't it? Because they're always like, oh, Billy would love this. Or, oh, this is what Billy would order at this restaurant. Or, oh, like, wouldn't this be better if he was here the whole time and every second? I mean, you just, but we've all been there, right? They talk constantly about the other person. Why? It's because it's where they're finding life. It's where they're finding a deepest sense of joy and meaning at the time. I'm not bashing that. Like, don't run away with that. We're human beings. But I'm just saying, we talk about what we care about most, what's most valuable to us. Paul is praying and asking them to pray for this open door because this was everything to him. His temporal situation and circumstance had ceased to be the focal point of his existence. He knew he couldn't even foresee the good that the Lord was up to in any given situation. But he had faith that whatever was happening, God was in it. He was using it, hear this, to push the gospel further and further into him and the others he came in contact with. When you embrace Christ, when you embrace him as the mystery, when you embrace that he is your life, Because mystery and trust, they're like two sides of the same coin. Mystery, you embrace it, you're saying, I trust. I trust you, Lord. This allows us to do the following, and this is what I'll wrap up with. Because Paul was suffering, guys. He was suffering in prison. You will only suffer for what's most important to you. You will only be in chains outwardly for what you are already in chains for inwardly. (laughs) Paul had become a slave to the gospel. So being imprisoned literally was something he could embrace as God's will for his life. You see, opportunities, open doors start to get redefined. (laughs) To the degree that we surrender ourselves to what I'm talking about this morning, to what Paul's talking about this morning, to the truth that Christ is our life, it will determine our ability to see everything as a mysterious opportunity from the hand of God to have the gospel proclaimed in us and then through us. You know that, I'll wrap up with this, the, the hollow and deceptive philosophy that the Colossian church was struggling under. There's a lot of different thoughts about that, but I've got some thoughts about what hollow and deceptive philosophy is going on in our culture. It's, it's our religious syncretism because we're not blending a lot of different actual major religions in our world today. But here's what I'm, I'm blending. I'll at least say this for myself. This is the modern fixation. Blessing. Happiness. Comfortable. Fun. This is the only way for my life. This is, this is life to me. These are the things I want. Then only in blessing, only in fun, only in happiness, only in comfort will you see an open door. This limits our ability to receive and follow Christ. I'm willful. Here are the ways I want to see you work. Not willing. Pain and suffering, for me at least, has been the most used and most profound way in which Christ has drawn me to himself. He has opened doors to explode the gospel in my life through these things and bring me back into a living reality of my frailty and my dependence upon him to teach me the mystery of walking in Christ in you, the hope of glory that Paul's talking about. For us to be willing to suffer, as Paul did in proclaiming the gospel, we must be willing to suffer to have the gospel formed in us first. It must be proclaimed in us before it can be proclaimed through us. Christ must take supremacy in your life. He must be life to you. You will only talk about him if that's what's going on. If he does, you'll be compelled to speak about him. It'll be easy to be like talking about your boyfriend. And you'll embrace the mystery and sovereignty of His will for your life. So do it. Let's do it together. Embrace the mystery. Set your minds on it. Meditate on it. What has happened for you in Christ? Let's pray. Lord, I'm a willful man. Oftentimes I feel like my life feels like that prison, and I uh, i don't even have the eyes to see or the ears to hear the doors that you're opening all around me um, for me to receive the truth of your gospel and for me to even share that truth with the world around me, oh, Lord, because I'm so committed to you working in the ways that I want to see you work. So I thank you for this beautiful little sentence from Paul and all that... It implies that um, he had fully embraced this, Lord, and I pray that you give us the grace to do so as well, um, that we have loosened the grip that we have on controlling our lives and that we would be people who would fall headlong into the mystery and the trust and the significance of what you've accomplished for us, your love for us, your grace on us. Uh, may it become life to us, Lord. And may we talk about it in your name. Amen.